Hello and welcome to another episode of the Growth Podcast. I am really excited today to have Hila joining, who is the former VP of Growth at Acorns and also worked at Growth Hackers and is now opening a, a new chapter of her career. Hila, thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me, Matt. Absolutely. And so what we're going to talk about today is something that I basically know zero things about. And I'm going to guess that most of our listeners don't know much of anything about. And that is, what does growth look like in China? When did it start? How is it growing? What does the role look like? What is the future? How is it different or similar to what is happening in the United States and Europe and and other Western markets? I'm really excited to dig in and just learn about this because I I know nothing. And Hila, you are uh, a bit of an expert on this topic. You wrote a book in Chinese about growth, and I am really excited to hear all of your insights around it. Yeah, I'm really excited to share about that as well. I think it'd be great if you can give a quick background on yourself, and then we go ahead and jump in. My story is that I came to United States from China in actually 2008. I got a degree in biology and biochemistry. When I came to US, I got my MBA and began my career in the area of data analytics. And then from there, transitioning to a VP of growth in my last company, Acorns, kind of really taking that experimental and data-driven approach in, in science, in biology, into the, the world of product and marketing and growth. I'm just a nerd about experiment. I want to test essentially everything. So very excited to be here to talk about that. That is awesome. And even though you've been doing growth here, you're pretty plugged into the to the growth community in China. And I think most listeners are probably like me. You know that China is becoming increasingly important in the global tech community. However, you probably don't have much context outside of the major players of companies that are really becoming powerhouses. This concept of uh, what is the growth role look like there? and all that. Can you give us like a 30,000 foot view of growth in China? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, definitely. So for me personally, it came back to 2016 when Sean Ellis, like my former boss at Growth Hackers and myself, went to China to attend a growth conference together. We, We gave talks there. So back then, the state of growth in China is that It's still within mostly the tech and internet companies community. There are some people who heard about it before, the term whether it's growth or growth hacking or growth hackers. Among this group of people, most think it's some kind of black magic that you can just magically improve your metrics without doing much work. Not many people are actually doing it or practicing growth in their company, but people are very interested and curious. I got many people ask me all sorts of questions and there are founders, there are marketers, there are product managers after I gave that talk. So fast forward now in 2019, I think growth has been almost like one of the hottest keywords in China in the past two and three years. As a profession, like as a role, now almost all internet companies have some sort of user growth role. Mostly is user acquisition. I think that's kind of similar here in US. Like some bigger and more established companies begin to have growth product managers. So more kind of uh, growth PM type of roles. As a discipline and function, I think more and more people begin to understand that growth is not a silver bullet. 
it's rather a very scientific approach of using data, using systematic experiments to improve metrics. So like people begin to understand that. But I would say like one of the areas I think it's still lagging is definitely in terms of tool and infrastructure. I was just reading this article that's funny. I was sharing with my friends in China that, you know, there is this famous infographic about U.S. MarTech companies. Yeah, all the logos and yeah. <laughs> it's called U.S. MarTech 5000. At least that's the version I read. Chinese companies produce the similar one. It's MarTech 500. So you can see really just purely from number of tools and system perspective, it's still early for China. And also the overall adoption rate of data and experiments mindset and tool set is still like early and, and much lower compared to US. The reason behind why growth is becoming increasingly popular and important among Chinese companies, there are a couple of reasons. Most important one is if you talk about five years ago, Chinese companies don't care about growth or growth hacking or anything like that because it is very easy for them to grow. Imagine like China has a huge population inside the country. Any company who starts during a good time can get users relatively easily. But now it is much harder. So whenever something gets harder, people begin to figure out new ways. I think that's always true. Like in the case of growth, people begin to look into the proven methodology in the U.S. that see whether they can adopt that in their company and product. And also there are a lot of uh, companies who are doing it really well. One good example will be TikTok. Like TikTok is actually using that methodology. So a lot of companies see their success and want to do the same thing. I think like that's why it is becoming more and more popular among Chinese internet companies. Right. It's almost like growth as a function is a response to increased competition and a harder way to find your market, right? It, it's now, all right, let's start to become creative about new channels and new approaches and new messaging and new tools about onboarding and all that fun stuff. Yeah, exactly. Before we were on this podcast right here, we were catching up a bit and you had mentioned that the growth role kind of started as like this product operation type thing before it was becoming called growth. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's something that's that's very interesting learning for me as well. So before I came back to, to China in 2016 for that conference, I always heard there is a, a role called operation among Chinese internet companies. And I always don't understand what do they do? Because in US, the typical operation roles are in manufacturing, right? Some sort, so, sort of process improvement or, or process management type of role. There are a lot of operation roles in China internet companies. So I was always wondering, what do they do? Turns out, actually, operation is very similar to growth in U.S., it's just taking a different angle. If you think about how uh, U.S. growth roles or growth teams started, it's starting from the social network companies in Silicon Valley with the first growth team being Facebook in 2008. But in China, the origin of growth is different because I think Chinese companies also face this situation that there is a gap that traditional marketing and product cannot fill with more and more digital channels, the product become digital. Everything's changing so fast. Like the traditional product and marketing 
doesn't cover all the areas that can generate growth. And U.S. approach is using a more engineering and automation product-driven type of role to use those scalable solutions, try to address that. A good example will be Facebook growth team. They have this people you might know algorithm to help people find other friends and they get connected and then they retain with the platform and they bring more friends. But in China, the approach the companies is taking is more a labor intensive role. So operation in Chinese companies is actually more like Think about it of early days, like the marketing promotion manager or really anything that is not covered by the traditional marketing brand marketing and the traditional product development, feature development, but more using a kind of labor intensive approach. So, for example, a lot of operation people are focused on promotions, uh, building community, loyalty programs. There are product operation, user operation, which is more focused on how to manage users at different tier. Like there are the new customers, there are the uh, existing customer. Within the existing customers, there are higher value customer, there are lower value customer. So those product or user operation people, they are responsible for using a more manual approach to give them offers, give them different promotions, building community, interact with them. And then there are also some other operation roles like event operation, content operation, social media operation, almost like anything that doesn't fall into traditional marketing product can be an operation role. The origin of operation role in China is more from like the e-commerce companies like Alibaba, Taobao. They do a really good job using like relatively cheap labor to build a personalized connection with their customers, give them very personalized treatment and also interact with them. And it is working pretty well for for them. So it is just very fascinating for me to begin to understand that and also begin to understand the background, the difference between why U.S. growth take this more data automation driven approach, while Chinese operation roles take this more labor personalized approach. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting to me. Yeah, it really seems like the the labor personalized approach allows this like micro creativity amongst like customer types or whatever it might be any part of the funnel rather than right, if you are just taking a pure engineering approach, sure, you can set up a B test, multivariate tests and all that, but you're still setting like one size fits all. But it sounds like this enables those teams and those companies to be way, way more specific about, all right, I know the exact situation of this customer. Let me think of some creative stuff to get them over the, to the next conversion event. Exactly. And let me give you an example. So there is a English learning app called Liu Li Shuo. It's, a, it's actually a listed company in U.S. market. And this entire company is really heavily rely on operation. And how they did it is basically... Think about when you try to learn English, right? You download their app. And I think a typical U.S. company, for example, Duolingo, is really heavily using their content, using all sorts of like growth tactics, gamification, trying to use a more engineer and data-driven automated way to support all sorts of needs and customers. For this company, Liu Li Shuo, they have a 6,000 
product operation team. Like this team has 6,000 people there. And this team really use a personalized approach to onboard new customers. This product has a mobile app, but they also have something called a WeChat group. So WeChat is kind of the, um, the similar thing in China to Facebook, but it has more kind of group chat functionality. So in WeChat, they actually organize all their customers into a group chat. And they use that group chat heavily to when onboarding customers upsell, acquire, finish actually some of their classes and retain them, right? So it's just uh, very interesting that how Chinese companies are utilizing that methodology to fit into their unique kind of channels and networks and build huge business among this. Does it seem like Chinese companies are continuing to trend in that sort of direction, or are they now becoming more engineering focused? Like, are they are they doubling down on it as a superpower, or are they saying this is actually becoming expensive? <laughs> Let's go the other path with it. Yeah, that's a good question. My observation is they are continuously investing in operation for sure. I don't see that going away, but I also see more and more companies are beginning to adopt this more data-driven, engineer-driven, product-driven, more automated and scalable approach. Because you are exactly right. At at some point, it will become like too expensive for, for Chinese companies even to utilize this type of approach. So they are maintaining the operation route, but begin to adopting the more scalable solutions for sure. What's interesting to me is I look at a company like Superhuman. I don't know. Do you use Superhuman? Yeah, I actually was exploring their process as well. Yeah, it it very much sounds like, uh, I mean, it is a super labor intensive thing because the only way you can get onboarded is you have to talk to them and do all that. So they're borrowing rather than the other way around. I almost felt like end of day, U.S. companies are so good at data-driven A-B testing automation. In order to cut through the crowd, you need to be that maybe labor-intensive human factor company that utilize that approach, right? In China, if everyone is doing labor-intensive things in order to become more efficient and in order to stand out, you need to be that company that is really good at data and taking advantage of things that can be automated as well. So I very much see like two sides can learn a lot from each other. Are there other differences or similarities in terms of how Chinese and U.S. companies are doing growth differently or are those kind of the main ways? There are definitely other similarities and differences. First of all, like it is very interesting for me to watch how growth is evolving in China. Sometimes I really get the sense that it's going through the phases that U.S. has gone through in the old days. As an example, I remember I wasn't experienced it firsthand, but I know in the early days, Facebook, when Facebook was just out, there are a lot of gaming apps and getting viral um, on Facebook and becoming hugely successful and all of a sudden get banned when Facebook begin to tighten the platform control because they don't want a lot of spam hurt the user experience, right? I see that similar thing happening at WeChat as well. Like two years ago, three years ago, all sorts of companies are kind of getting viral through WeChat and gaining huge amount of users overnight. But last year, WeChat begin to tighten control as well. And a lot of companies just die overnight. So it's kind of almost like 
history repeating each other in different channel, different country, but the gist of the story is very similar. And I also see that companies go through the phases in terms of in the beginning, they, they make a decision without any data. And then they, they begin to collect data, but don't know how to use them. And after that, they begin to analyze. And now a lot of sophisticated companies are trying to automate a lot of the data-driven decision-making, things like that. So kind of similar phase U.S. companies has gone through, but maybe ahead of the curve. So that's one similarity. Um, the, the other is really definitely around uh, methodologies, principles. I mean, Consumer psychology are always the same between Chinese and Americas, no matter or any human kind of in anywhere, right? So a lot of the best practices around A-B testing, conversion rate optimization, a lot of those are very similar, but just in different ways with that culture, the unique aspect of culture. So those are the similarities. And then in terms of differences, Definitely, we talk about the human factor versus more data-driven approach. The other one is the major platforms and channels are very different. Like in terms of acquisition channel, for U.S., the big two is really Facebook and Google, among B2C companies especially. For for China, it's WeChat and TikTok as the kind of uh, newcomer. WeChat is the biggest incumbent that doesn't go away for forever, probably. And in terms of engagement channel, that's also very interesting. U.S. like email is so important for most of the companies. In China, nobody uses email. I guess it's too absolute to say nobody uses email. Very few people use email. So that channel never become huge in China, but WeChat becomes this engagement tool. So now a lot of companies are trying to collect their customers' WeChat account and use that to maintain this ongoing relationship with their customers because other than that, they don't have a good way to reach out to their customers via email. Maybe phone is the only other way, but it's very hard to get phone and there's a cost and everything. You actually begin to see a lot of best practice or directions in among Chinese companies is how to accumulate this private WeChat group pool to stay engaged with your customer. So that is one big difference. The customers and audiences are very different. Obviously, Chinese and Americans are different, but the other interesting nuance is that because China market is so huge, there are almost like a lot of segments within the huge market and people who are in city, who are in countryside, people who are in the southern part and in the northern part, they're just vastly different. You cannot even treat them different. You cannot even treat them the same. So that's also part of the reason why the more labor intensive personalized approach work well in, in China. I would say the last one, I think Chinese companies actually are doing a lot of exploration, innovation in terms of monetization and business model, especially in the B2C space. For example, the live streaming market, the live streaming business in China is 16 billion. Just think about basically how companies or people do the live in Instagram or YouTube. I don't think a lot of people can monetize that yet. Maybe there are some, but it's still like small stream. But that is a hugely kind of monetized market in China. A lot of people can make a living through doing live streaming and collect kind of revenue from that. I would say 
B2B growth in terms of B2B companies or growth, Chinese companies is still lagging. But B2C is really exploding. A lot of new things happening there. It's so interesting to me. I also never quite thought about the fact that the channels are also fundamentally different because like you were saying, email is a much tougher thing to connect with customers or potential users versus in America, email is still like king in terms of a thing that you use and leverage to get people to engage and come back and continue using it and all that. I think in US, email is considered a owned channel, right? Like basically you own users' email address, you have a way to forever reach out to them. You can use this kind of channel to to upsell, to convert, to bring them back. That almost doesn't exist in, in China. There is a huge kind of trend in last year. Companies begin to realize that because they have no way to engage with their, with their customers. They begin to invest a lot in building like WeChat groups to just just imagine the equivalent is if you want to reach out to your customer in the U.S., you have to have their Facebook account and you have to reach out to them via, via Facebook. And their Facebook will be a mix of their personal life and business kind of content, everything. And that's what's happening in, in China. Do you think that the fact that there is no like clearly owned contact is the reason that everything is so labor intensive because it like it almost sounds like it needs to be that's an interesting question i think it it might be part of it but i don't think it's the most important reason for it one thing i talk about wechat a lot one thing is interesting is wechat really almost like as a as a super app so called super app completely changed like how companies are interacting with their customer because it really covers from acquisition, right? All Chinese are on WeChat. If you want to grow significantly, if you want to grow through referral or, or people's network, you have to go to WeChat. And then people use WeChat every day and they don't use email. So if you want to engage with them, reach back to them, you have to rely on WeChat as well. It has something similar to Apple Pay. So you can just do any payment with WeChat. So a lot of companies really, they don't need to build a product. They can use WeChat to, to, to do acquisition. They can use WeChat to do engagement. They can build something called a small program. So kind of a mini app within WeChat to fulfill certain functionality. Like you can open a store there. You can have certain interaction. You can host your class and sell it there. So it almost becomes this like all-inclusive platform companies can rely on to realize their business model without building a product in some cases for B2C for the most part. I think that might be one of the reasons that companies have to invest so much on this labor-intensive approach because WeChat is personal, but it now it's become business. So there are a lot of fundamental principles is still social network. So you need to interact with another person, right? But they are, it's also fulfilling a lot of product or business functions. So a lot of companies 
almost have to hire a lot of people and have some sort of WeChat account and act as an agent to interact with their customers and audiences. That is definitely one of the reasons. And, and it's just very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Okay, I, I want to touch on something that you had mentioned earlier, which was at the moment, the way the speed at which Chinese growth communities are learning is, is kind of ahead of the curve in all of the historical stuff that a bunch of the U.S. market stuff went through, U.S. markets went through. Do you think that China's growth community will become more sophisticated and surpass that of Western markets? Or do you think Silicon Valley and other tech hubs are, are always going to kind of lead the way in tactics? How do you see all that playing out? I actually wouldn't frame the question as like, who will be better or who will be leading? I would frame the question as more to, more as like what each side can learn from each other. Because I don't think that this is a competition at all, especially those are two different countries with very different channels, with very different customers, with very different products. A lot of techniques or channels applicable to U.S. may not even be applicable to China. The similar, similarly way West versa as well. So I don't think it's about like who will be better or who will be more sophisticated. It's more about what we can learn from each other. I think, as I mentioned before, Chinese companies still have a long way to go in terms of learning this data-driven uh, approach, even implementing a lot of basic infrastructure to collecting data, analyzing data, and also adopting this experiment-driven approach, engineer-product-driven approach. So there, there is still a long way to go. There's a lot to learn. I think U.S. is absolutely leading in that area. But I think U.S. companies can definitely maybe borrow some of the methodologies or tactics from this like more labor-intensive but more personalized approach to add that unique human factor, right? Like you mentioned superhuman. I don't know whether they borrowed that from China. Maybe they realized that on their own. They just realized that in order to be differentiated from their U.S. peers, they have to take a different approach. And it just happened to be similarly the approach Chinese companies are are taking. And I think I will share a story from my personal experience as well. When I wrote the book about growth, the Growth Practitioner's Guide, I kind of experienced that myself firsthand. So do you cook? I do cook, yeah, sometimes. Do you use recipe when you cook? I do half the time. Uh-huh. When I came to U.S. 10 years ago, when I read the recipe in U.S., it's very interesting to me because it's very different. Uh, U.S. recipes are very clear, very standardized. Like you put one teaspoon of salt, you put two cups of butter, and you can buy the cups or teaspoons, right? They are all the same. So whenever there is a recipe, anyone with the right tool and can follow procedure can, can do it. But Chinese recipes are very different. Chinese recipes are very freestyle. It will say a little bit of salt here and add a, a, wait for for a couple uh, for, wait, wait for a couple moments when when you feel it's ready and add a little bit of of oil. So it's very freestyle. It's not standardized at all. So when I wrote the book myself. I actually was introducing a lot of the U.S. approach to Chinese audience, and I borrowed a lot from the U.S. recipe approach, really broken down what is acquisition, what are the metrics, what are the 
methodologies and kind of make it really clear, standardized, and er everyone can use it, right? And it is actually pretty popular. It is a big hit among Chinese readers, and they really love it because they never see anything like that before. They didn't know a book can be like that. It's very standardized. Anyone can just borrow the template and can use it. So I think that is something that's really interesting to me. Um, going back to this question, I think there is a reason fundamentally tied to the culture why a lot of U.S. Growth approaches are more data-driven, standardized, more scalable, because that's, for the most part, Americans think, right? And, and the Chinese version is a little bit more freestyle, and everyone can think of something different, and each person maybe have their own creativity added in how they interact with this audience, how they design this product. But I think the best recipe will be mostly standardized so that everyone can use it and can repeatable. But if you think if everything is standardized, then everyone can do it, right? So you need to add some unique variation, unique ingredients, or or even maybe add a little bit more salt or add whatever in, in your freedom, trying to make it something differentiated and unique. So I think that's the best recipe for for food, also for success, maybe. I really enjoyed my unique perspective in observing both China and U.S. kind of growth community, how they are doing and learning. And I think they can continuously benefit from learning from each other. Yeah, I love that way of thinking about it. It's funny because I, I try to follow recipes as much as I can. And then every now and then I'll make a change based on how I felt like it was coming out or, or whatever. I love that way of thinking about it, right? It's, it's not just about... The standardized recipe, it's a really good starting point. And sometimes to like stand out and really, really do something special, you have to add your own twist on it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So do you have any other like really interesting cases or companies that you wanted to talk about? Or do you feel like you, you covered all the, the main ones that you think are worth sharing here? Yeah, I can. I think I can think a few more. I think the, the first one will definitely be TikTok. I know like TikTok is making a big noise in China and also now in internationally in US as well. So the the parent company of TikTok, ByteDance, is supposedly the most valuable startup entire world, valued at $75 billion now. And in China, it is actually the reason a lot of companies, including Tencent or Alibaba, those more like older, bigger, successful internet companies are beginning to learning about growth and everything because TikTok is actually very much growth-minded. It claims itself to be an app factory and really has a systematic model using not AARR, but RARRA, like starting from retention, testing the app to see whether it, the users can stick. If user retention reach certain level, they begin to work on kind of uh, activation. And then from there, working on referral, making sure like all the customers are bringing a lot of new customers and then working on revenue, make sure the business model, the revenue stream can work well. And then in the end, like throw tons of money to, to acquire. That's how TikTok actually gets started in China within the, this company. When they say the huge success, they replicate that into international markets as well. So they have a very internally, they have a 
very systematic approach. Uh, and culture-wise, I think they are very similar to Facebook culture early days, maybe now still like encouraging a freedom. There's no approval process. It's almost a little bit chaotic. A lot of A-B testing, everything is considered experiments and very data-driven. So a lot of companies actually seeing TikTok success and begin to adopt the growth methodology. And they are actually, they have influenced a lot of companies through their success. That's definitely one interesting example. The other one, there is a company called Pinduoduo. So Pinduoduo is already listed. It's a $33 billion company. And they they actually are e-commerce company. They are challenging the, the historical kind of incumbent Taobao and Alibaba pretty significantly. And how they get started is really based on WeChat. And they have this function or feature called group buying. So when you try to buy something, you can via WeChat share with your friends. And when you have a couple of people buy together, you get a lower discount. It's nothing new, but they really test that in entire flow perfection, make it really perfect so that they really take advantage of WeChat network, achieve significant growth in record time. Their entire team actually has gaming background. So they build a lot of gamification into this kind of platform. People really are not there just buy stuff. They're there to collect coins. They are there to do flash deals. They uncover gems and everything. So it is a pretty huge success in terms of how quickly they become listed company. And as a young company, they are challenging Taobao, which kind of beat Amazon in the early days in China, right? Yeah, I think a lot of Chinese companies are really seeing a lot of the success from those companies and begin to do more and more. Yeah, those examples are so interesting. And the way that you frame it in terms of how they're approaching the funnel it is kind of flipping it on its head. It, it really is about getting their retention first, right? Because with TikTok, you can play around with the app as much as you want before you even make an account or do anything. So interesting. This is actually going to be one of the longest episodes we've ever done. And I think it's well worth it because I, I love all of what we're talking about here. I've learned a ton. Are there any other things that you feel like you didn't get a chance to cover that you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, I think that's all. I had a fun as well. Great. Well, thank you again so much for joining. It's a pleasure to have you. And yeah, thank you. Any last words? Um, no. Okay, all right. <laughs> that was a weird way for me to wrap it up. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you again for all of you that are listening and you haven't tuned out yet. I would super appreciate a subscribe, a share a review, whatever it is. I really appreciate you listening in the first place. If you have any feedback, anything like that, my email is matt at drift.com. I will catch you on the next episode. And Gila, thank you again so much. Really do appreciate you joining today. Thank you for having me. Bye. Absolutely. Bye.